the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Hey, I saw a green Hummer drive by on Monday. And somebody else says, I saw a green Hummer drive by on Friday. I'm not wrong. They're not wrong. What does it mean? The green Hummer drove by on Monday and on Friday. It's not a contradiction. It just is the complete story. So when you put the Gospels together, what it tells us is there were two occasions when Jesus drove out the money changers. One time at the beginning of his ministry, as John records. One time at the end of his ministry, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. Have you ever wondered why there are four Gospels, John, Luke, Matthew, and Mark? Each one talks about Jesus and his time on earth. Each covers part of his ministry and his death and resurrection. But each also brings a unique perspective to the greatest story ever told. Pastor Gary today shares that while the details may differ at times, that doesn't mean these four books contradict each other. On the contrary, They actually provide a fuller picture of who our Savior is. They prove His significance to the world. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's take out our Bibles, go right into our Bible study. We're going through John's Gospel right now. We're in uh, chapter uh, 2. So we left off right after the section in chapter 2 about how Jesus changed water into wine. Water he turned into wine. He opened the eyes of the blind. There's no one like him. Anyway, a song came to my head, so I thought I'd share it with you. That's all I'm going to give you. But right now, we come to verse 12, where it talks about Jesus clearing the temple. Interesting passage here. We see kind of another angle of Jesus. This is not going to be sin here. You know, not all anger is sin. We're going to see this is righteous indignation that he expresses. But it's a difference. This isn't the Sunday school Jesus. You know, the, the Sunday school Jesus, when I grew up, felt bored, you know, flannel board, whatever, and they would put the little paper figures of Jesus and disciples and stuff. And, and it was always nice, gentle stories. They didn't teach this one in Sunday school that I remember. Kids, Jesus comes in with a whip and whips people. Uh, we didn't talk about that one. So that's not Sunday school Jesus, but it is Bible Jesus. And here we are, verse 12. And it says, after this... 
he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. So circle the town, Capernaum, first time that John in his gospel mentions Capernaum. This will be the hometown of Jesus' ministry for the next three years or so, located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, beautiful town. We were just there. And notice it says he went with his mother and brothers and his disciples. No mention of dad. It is believed at this point that his uh, not, not his biological father, but his adoptive dad, his legal guardian, Joseph, has already died. After Luke talks about Jesus being 12 years old around the temple courts, remember that scene when Jesus' parents, they thought that they had him and they get on their way back to, uh, to Nazareth and forgot that they had left him at the temple court area. It's not because they were negligent parents, it's just because you would travel in large caravans and so a lot of times kids would just be running around and you would think your kid is with your friend's kids and, and turns out that Jesus was left behind. And he's 12 years old at that scene in Luke's gospel that he tells us and that's the last mention of the record of Joseph. So he just quietly fades off the pages of the Bible, there's no record of his death. But the fact that it mentions here, mom is with him, brothers, disciples, no mention of father. Joseph is now probably has died. They stay here in Capernaum for a few days. But then next verse, verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, it says go up to Jerusalem. We've talked about this before. Jerusalem is actually south from Capernaum, but it's a high holy place, so it's always a reference going up to in respect for this being the place where the temple of the Lord is. Distance, about 90 miles. No short jog. This is Capernaum to Jerusalem, about 90 miles. They would typically follow the Jordan River down south from the Sea of Galilee, down almost to the Dead Sea, and then at the town of Jericho, they'd make a jog uh, up, you'd take a right-hand turn, but it would be going west up to uh, Jerusalem. And so that's where he's headed for the first of three recorded Passovers in the Gospel of John. So this is why we can recognize that Jesus' public ministry was a little more than three years. Because the Passover feast occurred once a year, and there are three recorded Passovers that Jesus participated in in his public ministry, and thus that's how we learned that his public ministry spanned about three, three and a half years. And he goes up here to Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover. By the way, we're coming upon the Passover season uh, here soon, and it usually corresponds right with our time of Easter. And so verse 14, in the temple courts... He found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Okay, so here's the scene, Jesus driving out the money changers. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record Jesus driving out the money changers. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, each record that Jesus did this towards the end of his ministry. Now, this is towards the beginning of his ministry. I remember several years ago reading an article in Newsweek. Newsweek usually puts something out about Jesus and Christianity around Easter time. And there was this article in Newsweek that talked about how, see, you know, there are holes in the Bible. There are inconsistencies. There are errors in Scripture. because, And they pointed out in the article, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say, that Jesus drove out the money 
changers towards the end of his ministry. John says it was at the beginning. Do you see the contradictions? I don't see a contradiction there. I don't see a contradiction at all. That's like saying, if I stood out on the corner of Sickland Road and I say, hey, I saw a green Hummer drive by on Monday. And somebody else says, I saw a green Hummer drive by on Friday. I'm not wrong. They're not wrong. What does it mean? The green Hummer drove by on Monday and on Friday. It's not a contradiction. It just is the complete story. So when you put the Gospels together, what it tells us is there were two occasions when Jesus drove out the money changers. One time at the beginning of his ministry, as John records. One time at the end of his ministry, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. It's not a contradiction. They complement the whole story so that you get the full picture here. Now, what I love about the detail in John's gospel, though, is that John is the one who says that Jesus braided, made a whip out of cords that he would use to drive them out with. And I, I think to myself, this shows extreme restraint on Jesus' part, doesn't it? Because how long, I don't know, this is, this is a guess, I don't know, how long would it take to braid a whip? I mean, a few minutes. So it's not like he's just like, you know, flying off the handle here, but he's taking a few minutes to what? To braid a whip. He's going to make a whip. Now, I also try to imagine in my mind, typically you're going to make a whip, braid a whip. You need somebody else to hold the other end. I'm thinking to myself, you know, he, he pulls some unsuspecting person there who's part of the whole money changing thing. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he just pulls somebody off to the side. Hey, can I get your help for just a minute? Yeah, sure. What do you need? Could you just hold the other end of this, of these cords here? I just need to braid a little bit. Really? Okay. And so he's braiding and maybe he's chit-chatting with this guy and he's crossing over doing the, you know, the three cords and, and the guy on the other end is just like, what, what are you making this for? I'm making it for a whip. Come, come again? Yeah, whip. I'm going to make it for a whip. Did you say whipped cream? No, not whipped cream. I'm actually going to use it because I'm going to spank everybody here in just a few minutes. I mean, this is, this is the Jesus that is the tough Jesus. I love this other side of Jesus. Of course, we all love the meek and mild and loving and gracious and tender Jesus. We all want that Jesus. But once in a while, don't you just kind of like this Jesus who's just, I've had enough. You know, the Indiana Jones Jesus, okay? That's what I'm picturing right here. And he's driving out. Now, why is he, why is he upset here? Why is this righteous indignation? We've talked about this through the other Gospels. The people here are making a profit off of the Jewish people. This is becoming not just a market. This is a flea market. This is a bazaar in the real sense of the word. What have they done? They've taken the sacred temple area of the Lord and they've turned it into a way to gouge people financially to line their own pockets. Caiaphas, one of the, there were two high priests, Caiaphas and Annas, who shared. It was a, a father-in-law and a son-in-law during this particular time. Caiaphas was known to rake in a huge amount of money. Some records, when you translate it, some historical records figured that he may have even made in today's term. A million dollars every year that he, that he would use the market of the temple court area to just, you know, gouge people. How would he gouge people? Because when you would bring your sacrifice to the temple, especially for Passover, you would not bring your lamb 90 miles like it would have, the journey was for Jesus from Capernaum to Jerusalem. You would buy your lamb there. Well, the market is way up because now it's, you know, supply and demand. And we have the supply and you have a demand. And so we're going to charge an exorbitant rate because you need a lamb and you didn't bring one with you. On top of that, they would exchange money. 
because the typical coinage of the day had either a picture of Caesar or some other kind of Roman idolatry on the coins. And so the Jews saw that as idolatry to have the figure of a a Roman emperor on it who proclaimed himself to be God. So you had to exchange your Roman coins for a Jewish temple coin to be used then as your entrance fee into the temple. So all of this was a way to line their, their pockets of the Jewish leaders at the time. And Jesus sees this and he realizes that this is not a house of prayer like my father's house is intended to be. This is a place of just simply trying to make a profit for the sake of making a profit and taking advantage of people in the process. So he takes this whip, drove them all from the temple, both sheep, cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables, said to them, get these out of here, how dare you turn my father's house into a market. The other gospels add how he talks about my, my father's house should be called a house of prayer. Well, verse 17, you read on with me, it says his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's taken out of Psalm 69.9. So his disciples, when they see him in this restrained but righteous indignant mode here, they connect the dots. They're like, hey, Psalm 69.9, he's got some zeal going on right now, doesn't he? He's passionate for his father's house, and so zeal for your house will consume me. It says, and then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? In other words, what right do you have to come in here, take your little fancy whip, and start whipping us all and driving out all the money changers? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? And I'll pause there because John tells us in the next verse what he really meant, but they interpret it. Jesus is always using different allegorical terms to illustrate deeper truths. And so here he is in the temple court area, and he makes this reference about destroy the temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And so they make the assumption that he's talking about the temple itself, the structure itself. The temple that was standing in Jesus' day was known as the second temple. It was known as the temple that Herod had built. Now, there was the first temple that Solomon built. Then that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when the Jews were taken into captivity, 586 B.C. Then you remember Zerubbabel came back, Nehemiah came back with with those who had been captive. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they come back, they rebuild the temple. That is the second temple. But under the rule of King Herod, who was kind of this liaison between the Jews and the Roman Empire. He was an appointed king, a puppet of Rome, but there to kind of keep peace and oversight of of the Jews in the province of Israel, which is part of the Roman Empire at this time. Herod wanted to do two things. He wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jews. And secondly, he wanted to leave a legacy. He figured that his name would never die if he would do enormous building projects. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about Herod the Great. Because he did... Uh, engage in enormous building projects, one of which was this Temple Mount. What he basically did was he disassembled the second temple and rebuilt it. It, in essence, really is a third temple, but Jews today will still only refer to it as the second temple. He basically dismantled it, rebuilt the whole thing. And what Herod did, he was brilliant in many ways. He was very evil in many ways. But he leveled out Mount Moriah 
to the square footage of what is, what is even still today, the Temple Mount area, the platform, he built off of a mountain. So a mountain has generally a peak, right? And he builds this platform using the top bedrock of the peak of the mountain. But as the mountain begins to, you know, decline in topography, he had to make a flat surface. And the summit of Mount Moriah was not large enough to do what he wanted to do. So he builds this enormous platform, the size of six football fields. It is still today the largest man-made platform in the world. And he builds up retaining walls. He uh, levels it out with uh, fill dirt. And then these huge Jerusalem stone block as foundation. And, you know, even today you can see the remnant of Herod's work there. Now, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. But you can still see the Herodian, some of the Herodian stones and the Herodian walls there from the first century. He started this building project around 16 B.C., it would take 80 years to complete. He wouldn't even be alive for the completion of it. It would be completed in 63 AD. Almost 80 years to complete. It was this enormous project, but he starts it in 16 BC. By the time of this conversation here, it's, it's about 30 AD, so it's 46 years into the building project. Herod the Great's already dead by now, but the building project itself is still going on. The temple has been completed, but the platform area and the adjoining buildings and all this kind of stuff is still going on. And so the Jews, who are skeptical about Jesus and who he is, say to him, It's taken 46 years, I mean, up to this point. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and everything here on the the temple grounds area. And you, you think that you can rebuild it in three days if it's destroyed? Now look at verse 21. John tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. It was his body. And, you know, think about it. Our bodies as well are referred to as a temple unto the Lord. Twice in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.16, he said, we are God's temple and his spirit dwells in us. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he refers to our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, we shouldn't worship our temples. We should take care of our temples. The temple itself on the Temple Mount, the literal one, was itself not to be worshiped. It would be the Lord's presence within the temple. It is the Lord's presence within our temple. He is the one to be worshipped. We should take care of the temple. You know, the temple's going to crack and fade and sag and all that kind of stuff. And eventually the temple's going to return to dust. Then we're going to go to be with the Lord and get a glorified body. But we should take care of the temple. But the temple's not to be worshipped. It is the Lord Jesus who takes residence in us, but it is not the temple itself. So even our bodies are referred to in Scripture as the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. By this, he meant the temple of his body. Verse 22, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They had a flashback moment to this. And then they believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So John inserts that there to to let us know that, you know, at the moment his disciples didn't really connect the dots. But after Jesus rose from the dead, they had a flashback to this scene. Verse 23 says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. So 
some interesting verses there. Basically, when it says here that Jesus would not entrust himself to them, it just means that in general, Jesus just, you know, wouldn't become closely familiar with just anybody and everybody. He has a select 12. And within the select 12, he has three, Peter, James, and John, that he's especially close to. He does not entrust himself just to anybody. He has a close-knit circle that he's gathered around him for a particular purpose here, but he doesn't just entrust himself to the masses at large because he knows people. And, and he knows that some people can't be trusted, some people will betray him, uh, some people will deceive him, or try to, you know, not that he could be deceived. And so he, knowing the hearts and the evil intent of people, he doesn't entrust himself too much to too many. And he doesn't need, verse 25, man's testimony, he doesn't need man to validate his ministry. So, you know, they ask, by what authority do you do this? His answer is basically, you know, without them understanding this in full, what he's basically saying is, you know, give me a little time. When you see me rise from the dead, you'll know by what authority I do this, okay, because I have the power over life and death. And by the way, I don't need man to validate my ministry anyway. And so... That's the scene there, first Passover there in Jerusalem. Listen, before we move into chapter 3, here's a thought. When we see Jesus driving out the money changers and, you know, addressing what's going on wrong in the temple court area, and when we realize that our own bodies are compared to a temple in 1 Corinthians, if Jesus was so interested in driving out that which was shameful in the temple in Jerusalem, what is it perhaps in our own temple, in our own lives, that Jesus would want to address and drive out? What are some of the things in our own lives that we've allowed in and the compromises and sin issues that have gone unconfessed with the Lord? That if the Lord were to look at our temple, so to speak, might he have issue with anything going on in our own lives that we should examine? What is it he might want to drive out of us? Chapter 3 becomes now one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. John chapter 3, particularly verse 16. I read this quote from Charles Spurgeon uh, who said about John chapter 3. He said this, quote, If we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel, we should probably select this chapter as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And what is good for dying men is good for us all. For that is what we are. And how soon we may be actually at the gates of death, none of us can tell. Now he wrote that because this is probably the most classic chapter in the Bible that expresses the whole concept of what it means to be saved or using the terms here that Jesus uses, to be born again. Now that term has been used on many in different ways and many for over many different centuries and years since the time that Jesus first uttered them. It almost became cliche at some point where people talked about, you're born again, I'm born again, you're born again, I'm born again. But what does it really mean? Because it's still a valid term to describe the Christian experience. What does it mean to be born again? So here comes this conversation that Jesus has with one Pharisee whose name is Nicodemus. Chapter 3, look at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. 
for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human, but he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not